Today we start a new series called I Doubt, and my goal in this series is to help you transform your doubts into an opportunity to walk in faith. And so I think oftentimes as Christians, we think our goal is to like not doubt, right? Like one of our goals is I'm not going to doubt. My faith is going to be strong. (laughs) And I think we think that because like so often we hear about believe, 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 believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it's believe, 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 but what if we struggle to believe? Or what if we don't believe? We might fail, think that we're failing, wondering if we're doing this right. And no one wants to think that, right? Nobody wants to think that they're failing. Nobody wants to think that they're not doing something right. And what's kind of ironic is one of the main reasons that you're a Christian, that I'm a Christian, is that we recognize that we do fail and that we don't do stuff right. And so therefore, we can't trust in ourselves. We can't make up something and and believe just enough that it's going to be true. You know, we have to trust and believe in Jesus. And when we trust and believe in Jesus, he forgives our sins. He comes into our life. He transforms our life and we follow him and... So it's not about what we do, right? It's not about how good we are. We have to trust and believe in Jesus. So you kind of have to do something, right? You have to believe. So what if you don't? Or what if you don't believe as much as you wish you would? Or maybe at one point in your life, you really believed, and now you're not quite sure. Is that good enough? These are some of the questions that you can kind of go on a rabbit trail down and just wonder, how does this all work? How does this all fit together? And because it's confusing and maybe challenging, we like to avoid doubt altogether. Right? We say, doubt is the opposite of belief. And if we're supposed to believe, then I don't want to doubt at all. And I like, to, I like to think about it this way. Uh, we like to move forward in our life, don't we? You like to move forward? You like to, like to go somewhere? Our mission as a church is to connect you to God's next step for your life. Like there is something next. There is something next for you. And, and in our faith, in our spiritual life, we want to take our next steps to become more like Jesus, to mature in our faith, to strengthen our faith. We want our faith to be stronger tomorrow than it is today, right? But what if it's not? <laughs> what if you wake up tomorrow and you're like, I didn't, I didn't expect to feel this way. I like to think of it like a car, All right, hang with me here, these two illustrations. You're going somewhere in your vehicle, right? You're driving down the turnpike hours. You're in the car for three, four hours, maybe more. Some of you like to drive long distances. And you're going on the open highway. You're going like 75 miles an hour. 
And you could probably sit in that car for quite a while, couldn't you? You're listening to the radio, you got your foot on the gas pedal, you got the cruise control set, and you're just going, you're zooming. And that's fine. But then, all of a sudden, you see some red lights in the distance, and you just pass the last, the last exit to get off, and you come to a stop. On the highway, on the turnpike, you got three or four miles before you can get off, and you're not moving. <laughs> you're like, I hate that feeling. I know, me too. That's the worst, right? It's like you're in something designed to move, and you're not, right? As long as you're moving, as long as you're going, it's fine, because that's what it's designed to do. You could sit there all day long. But the moment you're stuck, you're stopped, you're not making progress in something specifically designed to move, now it's the end of the world, right? And the same can kind of be said about airplanes, right? You could sit on an airplane for hours and hours and maybe even a day or so. And you're cruising, you're flying, it's amazing, you know, you're, you're enjoying your time. And then you sit at the gate for like 20 minutes and it's like the end of the world, right? Or maybe you're real close to your destination and you circle around the airport. You're like, what? are we flying in circles? Yeah, yes you are. You're waiting for the right conditions to land. You're waiting for an opening. And, but it feels... Terrible. It feels horrible because you're in something designed to move and you're not. And I think that's what makes life so frustrating is because our life is designed to move forward, to take steps, to be better, to follow Jesus better. And, and when we're not, we wonder why. And when we don't take steps forward, Sometimes the thing that causes us to get stuck is our doubt. We don't feel like we're making progress in our spiritual life. And so what do we do? And we get faced with all these difficult emotions that being stuck on an airplane gives us, right? And so, so often our response to doubt is to quit, like, if I'm just doubting this, right, let's just quit. I can't take this anymore. It's not working. I'm tired of sitting on this airplane, circling the airport. I'm done. Maybe you felt like you were so close to your destination. Everything was great. And now, not only are you circling, the plane has kind of turned around and headed in the opposite direction. And you're just looking for a parachute because you want to get out of here as fast as possible. When we doubt, oftentimes the response is to quit. And practically, what this looks like is like we just quit engaging with church. We, qu we quit praying. We quit giving. We quit serving. Maybe you try something else to fill your void. Or maybe you go back to an old habit that you know will make you feel good in the moment. Or maybe... You've been trying to defeat a certain sin. You know, you were making progress and then, you know, you just doubt it and you feel like you got stuck and you just kind of accept that sin and just say, well, you know, this is life and you just embrace it and you hope for the best. So wouldn't it, wouldn't it be good in life, in your life, if God 
would just show up and just tell you what to do? You know, just like physically, just be like, here, here's the deal, right? Have you ever thought about that? You've got big questions, right? You need to know the answer to these questions of life. And if this was so important to God, then certainly he would answer them, right? Well, <laughs> years ago, uh, somebody asked me this very important, very, very important question to them. And this was the question. They said, um, is it a sin to vape? I told you, very, very important question. And so um, if you ever ask me a question phrased like that, this is going to be my response to you. I just tell you up front, right? I say, if you have to ask that question, you probably already know the answer to it. And instead of trying to figure out how close to the line of sin you should go, you should try to figure out how close to God you should be, right? So, a better question than is this thing a sin is, how can I honor God by doing this? How can I love God by doing this? How can I love others by doing this? How can I obey God by fill in the blank? Because it's a lot better question to try and get closer to God than it is to see how close you can get to the line of sin. But wouldn't it be great if God would just show up to this particular question? Let's say, right? Is it a sin to vape? And like, what if God would just like literally sin in fr stand in front of you, right? God's standing in front of us and he just says, okay, thou shalt not vape. Because right? God speaks in King James only language, right? You would 100% trust it, right? Maybe. Maybe. And you're like, okay, well, you know, God's not going to, I'm not expecting him to do that, you know. But, but if there was a verse in the Bible, it's God's word, right? It's 100% true. It's, it's, I would believe it. I would trust it. If God's word said it, I'm looking, I'm looking. And you're like, I'm, I'm looking in First Smoking 115. It says, do not vape. It is a sin before God. And if you were reading it on the page in front of you, some of you are looking for it. I just made that up. It's not, there's no First Smoking, right? If you were reading it on the page in front of you, then I would believe it because it's God's word, right? Really? <laughs> Maybe. That's a little bit of a, a silly illustration. Um, let's do a serious one. That's pretty serious. What about life after death? Life after death, that's a pretty big one. Like we can't know for sure what happens, right? Until we get there, and then once we get there, it's kind of too late, isn't it? Maybe you doubt that anything happens after you die. Maybe you doubt there's a heaven, or you doubt there's a hell. And so maybe you've thought before, if, if there was just some way to know, like if, like if somebody could go there and come back and tell us, well, then I would trust it, Right? Right? Maybe. 
But it's really fascinating that Jesus tells us a story of this exact scenario. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at Luke 16 today and one other passage. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We'll, we'll love to send you home with a free one in the new here area in the lobby. We would send you home with a free Bible. And um, there's words are on the screen behind me as well. And so in Luke 16, Jesus tells this story. It's a parable, this story that illustrates a bigger spiritual truth. And Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. And as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. And so Jesus just tells the story. He sets it up. There's a rich man. He's got everything you ever want. And outside the gate of his house, there's this poor guy. He doesn't have anything. And uh, his life is kind of miserable, right? Rich man, poor man. Jesus goes on. He says, the, the poor man died and was carried to the angel's side beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. And that's how the New Living Translation translates the phrase Abraham's bosom, which again, you're probably like, what is that? Um, also paradise, in some ways heaven. So I encourage you, if you're curious, to look into the relationship between paradise and heaven and how does that work together. But Jesus is telling the story to illustrate this point, right? The poor man died and he goes to this good place with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Certainly he was with God. This is the good place with God. The rich man also died and was buried. And he went to the place of the dead. Greek word for that place of the dead is Hades. And again, if you want to study it, Hades and hell, how do they relate? They're similar. They could be different. Something to look into. If you want to talk more about that, feel free to call me, <laughs> text me, or ask the question in the next series. We'll answer it. And so the rich man died. He went there. And there in torment, he saw Abraham in a far distance with Lazarus at his side. So Abraham, uh, Abraham's bosom is the good place. And the poor guy is there. And the place of torment, the place of the dead. Hades is where the rich man went to. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. You think of hell as like fire and brimstone, right? These are some of the verses that kind of bring these ideas about there's flames in this place. And if he just would get like a little drop of water, then his life or his experience, whatever you want to call it, might be a little better. And I just wonder, like, did the rich man ever think to bring some water to this poor guy outside of his gate? You know, all these years he's just sitting there and now it's flip-flop. Now the rich guy's asking the poor guy for water. And it's interesting, too, that we, we get this idea from this story. Again, it's a story. It's a parable illustrating some deeper spiritual truths that in the where in the life after death, you can talk. I mean, this guy's shouting, this guy's talking, he's looking, he's seeing, he's feeling different things. And so Abraham responds to this guy's message and he says, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. And now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us and no one can cross over from here and no one can cross over to us from there. And so again, the story illustrating, I don't think you can see each other in heaven and hell. I don't, I don't think there's evidence of that. But 
He's illustrating that there is a separation, and you can't just go from one place to the other. You know, once you get there, that's, that's what it is. The rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, right? If there is nothing you can do for me, go to my five brothers. I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment, right? This rich guy's like, I got five guys. I don't want them to be here. They're my brothers. They're my family. I need you to go, and I need you to go and tell them because they don't believe, and, and, and I want them to, right? So here, let's just send them somebody who's been here before. And Abraham said, Moses and the prophets had warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. God speaking through Abraham in this moment is saying, you have your scriptures. You have your Old Testament, Torah, five books of the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. Like what he wrote is enough, plus all the other writers and the prophets. That's enough. If somebody were to come back, if Lazarus was to go back, God is saying through Abraham here in this moment, it's not going to make a difference. They have enough. I love this guy. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham. I think there's something inside of all of us that's like, no. Like, I, no, there's got to be more. I have, well, I have the Bible. I can read it. I know, but there's got to be more. No, it's not good enough. But if someone would just be sent from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. Like he knows. He's in this place of torment. He's in this place of anguish. He knows how to not go there. He knows that you have to repent of your sin and turn to God. Repent of your sin and turn to God. Just turn to God. That's what repent means. Is repent just literally means to turn. And so we're following ourselves. We're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in something and we need to repent, we need to turn, and we need to turn to God. We need to trust God, follow God, turn to God. And that will keep you from Hades, keep you from hell. And Abraham said, if they won't listen, this is the conclusion, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if somebody rises from the dead. Like, this is God saying, like, you know, we feel it in our heart, right? If, if, if someone would just come and we would, we would believe it, we would trust it, we would know it, we would fully embrace it. And, and God, through Abraham here in the story, is like, that's not, that's not it. Like, even if someone were to do that, it's not good enough. They have the scriptures. I've given them everything that they need to believe. I've given you and me everything that we need to believe, and I think you know this inside. I think you do. Because you've probably heard stories of people that have claimed that have passed away and have come back and have told their little story. And you're like, I'm supposed to believe a five-year-old boy in a movie? Really? And so, like, there's a lot of crazy, insane people and stories and things that people maybe make up. Maybe they make it up for popularity's sake. Maybe they make it up for all this different stuff. And so their story, you would think, could be good enough, but I don't know if it always is. And I've come to learn that this type of experience, this, you know, going, dying and kind of being brought back is, it could be called a near-death experience. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting research that has gone into this experience that people have all over the world. And certainly there's 
stories that are real, and God uses them to change people's lives and, and make them turn to God, and, and it's incredible. Um, but sometimes they are kind of crazy and, uh, you know, just interesting to, to listen to. But other times, they're, they're by very credible people, people that have a lot to lose. You know, if, if they start telling something crazy, and they might lose their job, they might lose their, their lots of money that they have. And so there's some interesting people that have had these experiences that God has used in their life. And so it's definitely a very real thing that some people could experience this and kind of come back and kind of share. But the point is, is that that's not like good enough. That doesn't help us believe for all those different reasons we just talked about, right? And so maybe you might wonder this question. If somebody like Random's testimony, their experience isn't good enough, well then what if, what if God would go there and come back? Like, you can believe God, right? There's got to be something that's 100% true, 100% right, and if God would do it, well then certainly I would trust it. I would believe it. You might know where I'm going next. In Matthew 28, I'm going to grab my Bible for this, Matthew 28, 5 through 7, we read that then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. So Jesus, who, who claimed to be God, was crucified, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And on the day, the morning that Jesus did this, who was there? Some women. And what were they coming to do? Put burial spices on Jesus. And an angel had to show up and remind them that Jesus isn't here. Like he told you what was going to happen, and yet they still didn't think it would. You would think that all the times Jesus predicted his death and burial and resurrection, that in the moment that it happened, like all the disciples, like everyone would have been standing outside the grave, you know, counting down like three, two, here he comes, one, and, you know, party. They weren't. No one was there. Not even his closest followers. And the ones that did show up, they came to help bury him better. And he wasn't even there. And so the angel reminds him, go to Galilee. Jesus told you to meet him in Galilee. Why are you here? Why are you, why are you standing here? And so then in verse 8, it continues, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. Two things that seem to be very opposite happening at the same time, right? Great joy and great fear. And they were frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. That's his message. I told these guys just like three days ago to meet me in Galilee. Like, take this important message to them, because obviously they haven't gotten it right now. And Jesus meets these women 
after he came back from the dead. Real incredible. It says, Then as the women went on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, You must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. And if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get into trouble. And so the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. And their story spread widely amongst the Jews, and they, were st- and they still tell it today. So Matthew, who wrote this gospel, in the moment he was writing it, he was saying that there is this story circulating, and it's, they're still telling it today. And isn't this true? Like, you would think, okay, God just died. He just came back from the dead. He is here showing himself to people. You've got an entirely different group of people creating their own story, their own truth, their own, this is what is really real. This is what really happened. Make sure you tell it to everybody while Jesus himself is telling the complete opposite story. So in the same moment, you have Jesus displaying the truth, and you also have people making up what they want to be true, what is beneficial to them, what is helpful to them, what makes sense to them. And then we read that the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, obviously. But some of them, and if you're following along, you know the word. But I want you to just hold on to it for a second. Because when they saw him, they worshipped him. Makes sense. And some of them, they they didn't. As I was studying this this week, and I'm like... I want to talk about Jesus' resurrection and how they trusted and believed in him and, and didn't and all this stuff. And I was amazed anew, afresh, at just how like crazy this resurrection day, like the moments after the resurrection, how do they all fit together? How do they work? Um, it, was really, it was really fun to study that and to, and to see. And like this whole point about going to Galilee, going to Galilee, go to Galilee, and they just didn't. They, they just didn't. Like, Peter didn't go to Galilee right away. The disciples didn't go to Galilee right away. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, the angel, the main thing the angel says in Matthew 28, 7 is, now go quickly and tell the disciples he's risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Remember what I told you. And then when Jesus shows up and tells the people, the women, Matthew 28, 10, then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. It's like the main message. The angel says it, Jesus says it. And it's because that's the last words that Jesus told his disciples in Mark 14, 28, after the last supper on his way to the garden of Gethsemane where he was gonna be betrayed, he's gonna be crucified in, in coming hours. Jesus said, after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. It's pretty clear. This is what Jesus wanted their people, the disciples, his closest followers, to do. 
But then we read in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21, that Jesus met the 11, they're called, um, because Judas wasn't with them anymore, in Jerusalem that resurrection Sunday evening. That was not a part of the plan, right? Go to Galilee, but we see that Jesus met them in Jerusalem. But there was somebody who wasn't there, and his name was Thomas. We're going to talk about him next week. Doubting Thomas is his name, but I think there's a better name for him than that. Eight days later, we read in John 20, 26 through 29, Thomas showed up, and Jesus showed up again. So Thomas was there this time. It's like, hey, but what about Galilee? Right? This was the plan. This was always the plan. So finally, then in Galilee, Jesus appeared again, but there was only seven of them. Where were the other four? They didn't didn't figure it out fast enough or something. There was only seven of them in John 21, 1 through 13. We read that story. And then finally, what we just read in Matthew 28, 16 through 17, Jesus met with all of them in Galilee. So Peter, specifically Peter, okay? Peter saw the resurrected Jesus three times before he was in the place that Jesus told him to go to. Three times. One time personally in Luke 24, 34. One time in that first meeting with the 11 in Jerusalem on the resurrection evening. And one time again, eight days later, when Thomas was there. And still, when Peter went to Galilee, they're on the beach. John 21, this is the story. Peter's like, okay, Jesus told me he's going to meet me here. What does Peter do? He goes fishing. Because what else are you supposed to do? This isn't going to happen. My, my Savior, my Lord, he was dead. Uh, yeah, maybe I saw him three times already, but like, <laughs> I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go back to my old way of life. I'm going to go back to what I am familiar with. And Jesus is just bringing them along and teaching them and, and with them. And, and so we just think that if only God would just show up and tell us, right? If, if only Jesus, who claimed to be God, would predict his own death, his own burial, his own resurrection, and actually pull it off, then I would believe in him. Right? Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, And when they saw him, the resurrected Jesus for like maybe the fourth time or fifth time, depending on who's theirs. They worshiped him, obviously. Resurrection, wow. But some of them, so we could look at them in judgment and say, You were there. You saw it. You shouldn't doubt. But they did. And don't miss this. They doubted, they did, because they were there. They saw it. They were obeying. They were in community with the disciples. They were there. And because they were there, they doubted. 
We don't know exactly how their life ended up. But if the goal of a Christian's life is to not doubt, then they shouldn't have been there. Because I don't know or living in ignorance is, is not doubt, right? But the very fact that they were standing there, that they were confronted with something, that they had to wrestle with it and deal with it caused them to doubt. Because they were following Jesus, because they were listening to Jesus, they experienced doubt. And so the question becomes with every single one of us is what do we do with this? Do you quit? That's the common answer. Like, I've seen it, I've tried it, and I still can't believe. Or, do you let your doubt drive you into deeper faith? And I hope that in our time together in this series, that's exactly what God will do in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we just worship you and thank you that you are who you say you are that we believe this morning that you predicted your own death, your own burial, your own resurrection. And that changes everything. Lord, help us to turn from our sin and turn to God. Help us to do that. And Lord, we just acknowledge in a moment like this that it's easier said than done. And that we have questions our faith maybe isn't as strong as we would hope. Maybe our faith isn't really there at all. But God, I just hear you saying that that doesn't change what is true. God, you are true. What you have done is truth. And Lord, as we wrestle with it, as we fight with it, as we ask questions, as we figure it out. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to not quit and to allow our questions, allow our doubts to bring us into a deeper relationship to you, with you. I believe you're calling us deeper. You're calling us closer. You're calling us to get to know you better, to get to know you more. You don't want us to be left in the dark. You want us to explore. You want us to understand. You want us to know you and love you and be with you and be close to you. And the closer we get, most often the more questions we'll have. And that's okay. Lord, be with us now in Jesus' name.